Welcome back to the Everything That Came Before Grace podcast. I'm Bill C. Well, today we have a very special episode. It's an interview I recently did with my dear friend and Divine Weeks guitarist, Raj McQuana. We rebroadcast this interview with permission from the Sandlot 7 podcast, and it's really more a conversation with an old friend than an interview. I hope you'll enjoy. Let's give a listen. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining in to Sandbox 7 Podcast. This is Raj Makwana, and I am thrilled to no end with our guest today. He is a founding member and singer for the acclaimed band Divine Weeks. He also has released several solo albums and in 2011 released a critically acclaimed book, 33 Days, Touring in a Van, Sleeping on Floors, Chasing a Dream. And that was a non-fiction book. And he is getting ready to release his first novel, Everything That Came Before Grace. I'm thrilled for many reasons for that journey that he's taken, but also I've known this gentleman for a good part of my adult life, and what you're about to hear is more of a conversation than an interview. Bill C., thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, Raj, and I am amused that you omitted the fact that you were also in critically acclaimed seminal <laughs> L.A. indie band Divine Weeks. That's true. I forgot that I provided the seminal part. <laughs> Leave well, that to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been very cool, Bill, from going to writing songs together in a basement in my living room floor to now reading this book that you have written. I mean, how exciting is that? What is this book about? I, you know, when the book opens, we meet this guy called Benjamin Bradford, and he's the single father of a nine-year-old daughter named Sophia. Now, we don't yet know the circumstances of how this came to be, but we know he's been going to a therapist for pretty much his whole, that whole time uh, because something happened. Um, and, and Benjamin, he's convinced himself all the mental illness in his family is going to get passed through him to Sophia. So he's completely tunnel-visioned about just trying to hold it together long enough to get Sophia off to college. And um, he's also just found out the only girl he ever loved, Anna, is getting married to his ex-best friend, who he lost her to a decade earlier. So that's a parallel running storyline about not just what they once had, but the life-changing moment when he lost her. And he basically can't let go of this idea he's meant to be with Anna, which poses the central question from right out of the gate. And that is, is it love or is it fatherhood that will save him? So those everyday questions that we all ask each other, right? Well, <laughs> that we ask ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I think it, it it shares one thing definitely with Thirty Three Days, and that is, I think it's a book for kind of people who are sitting up in the middle of their life and just saying, you know, what's happened. And so I think it kind of resonates for folks who have uh, who are just trying to make peace with their past and 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 do it in real time. Well, you know, that's a that's a that's a great point for me to take off on because 33 Days was nonfiction, kind of autobiographical in a ways. Um, when you first told me about this book and you shared with me some of the some of the story, obviously I could see parts of you in this and we'll get into that. But Well, I can't get away with much with you, Raj. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't. But how did you come up with this idea for this book? The short answer is I ran into a guy I met on 9-11. And on 9-11, my daughter, Maeve, was just a little kid. And, I, and after the terrible news of the day, you just couldn't take anymore. And we ran off to this park just for some peace. And there was this one other guy, a father, who had his young daughter too. And it was just one of those magical moments where for the next few hours, knowing time has suddenly become finite with this terrible event, we, you know, all the, the barriers went down and we shared our, our, our fears and our dreams and our, and our hopes 
of the future for our for our kids. And um, it was an amazing moment. And, and that guy had told me in real meaning, not the book, but me. Sure. He told me because yeah. I was telling him I was going through tough times as a young father. And I said, I don't know sometimes if I can make it. And he says, listen, man, you got to go all in. You be the father you never had. And I'll never forget that. And what happened was I ran into this guy again years later. Oh, interesting. And I thought to myself, could someone essentially stave off madness if there's if the stakes were high enough, even just for a little time? Could he hold back the dam if there was something like having to be there for your kid? And that's basically I dropped this into the story. That that guy, that guy became a character in this in this new book, and that was the impetus for the book. This idea of trying to hold on just long enough to get your kid off to college. Well, I mean that's really that's really interesting because obviously as I'm reading the book, um, there's a lot of you in it. There's a lot of other people I know in it, but then of course it leaps from reality to this novel, this really well well crafted book. Were you? Were there times, Bill, when you were writing it that you were like, okay, hey, this part is autobiographical. I'm going to draw from my own experience. But here, I really need to go into the realm of, of fiction. Well, I mean, I'm not the first writer who has used life experiences, real life experiences, to you know, tell, tell the, the story that lives in my head, that lives in all writers' heads. And we take great liberties. To answer your question, yeah, of course, because you know, uh, you know, uh, who like who is who is Anna? Like people want to know. You know, I don't want to use names, but is that so and so, Bill? You know, and and the answer is, of course, it's a composite, and certainly my, uh, my daughter Maeve is very much Sophia in certain ways, in certain ways not. Um, I, you know, I I guess the answer to the to the greater question is is. Um, while 33 days came up to the end of that story where me, I'll speak of me as a character, I'm sitting with my daughter and a very right. young daughter, and I'm speaking to the reader like, you know, I'm going to be here forever, you know, you know, taking care of this kid, and this is what I'm about and whatever. This new book basically fictionalized version takes up where that was because I wanted to speak about the father-daughter journey. And so that, in that sense, it's very much autobiographical. I just created these characters around it to, to, to give the, the, the story relate, relatability in life. Were there moments when you were writing the book where you felt, oh, okay, you know, this is getting too autobiographical again. I better, I better roll it back. Um, not really. I mean, like, I guess the, the, the stuff that's really very, very raw is, you know, Benjamin is trying to reconcile the death of his mother. Um, my mother is not dead, but she has certain similarities. They both suffer from mental illness and drug addiction. And so there, there's a lot of autobiographical parts there. In fact, I just gave my mom a, a paperback version of this book literally yesterday oh, <laughs> she opens it and goes well you killed me <laughs> and I go, that's not real <laughs> so you know it's 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 walking that that razor's edge that fine line that delicate balance um you know you, you gotta you gotta you gotta chase the muse as truthfully as possible well it's you know one of the things i love about it is the characters are all relatable you know there's this is such rich character development in this book and i can see you drawing from your own experiences but just how you develop them so as we get into each character one character i do want to talk about first um sort of a uh, supporting character if you will is the role is music the role that music plays in your novel i mean you go from frank sinatra nina simone hansen radiohead um all of this and i'm wondering you know, I know you. I know your vast record collection and the millions of songs that are in your head. How did you curate this book? Were there scenes that you wrote and said, "Ah, this is the perfect Nina Simone song for this"? Or how did that? How do you go about that? What's your process for that? Uh, well, it worked both ways. Um, there were there were songs that I loved that informed 
the narration or a scene or dialogue and vice versa. There were scenes that called for songs that I went searching for. I mean, you know, I've, I'm a music nerd. I mean, like I'm certainly, you know, a music obsessed wannabe writer, just like Benjamin. So that's very real, but yeah, I mean, music, you and I, what did we first things we, we, we bonded together on the, the escape that music provides the fact that music gives a voice that we otherwise could not, articulate ourselves we turn to music for comfort and so that idea very much informed um where the story went or i mean like you know i just i think i i'm a great lover of film and and that part is in the in the book too and and, and in the way that that a filmmaker will drop music into a scene and make it richer uh, in the same way you change lighting or, or, or shadows, um, I, I'm, I think a, a lot of my, my writing uh, um, is, is cinematic or inspired by cinema. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, just, I just wanted to sort of share with what's meaningful to me and in, impart it into the character Benjamin about this love of music. I mean, the fact that he turns to music to keep his sanity you know, that's that's what gives him sanity or, or the the hold on sanity is turning to the arts, to movies, to, to music. Yeah, I loved how he used music as his confidant, as his savior, as his ther- therapist, you know, often. Yeah. And he would have these different tunes that he would bring out. You know, music was such a key part for Benjamin. And it's one of the story. first things, I'm sorry, it's one of the first things that Anna, who is a very, we'll talk about her in a minute, but she's very much um, rigid when we meet her. And when she meets Benjamin, who at least at that point in his life, 18 years old, just starting college, is very free-spirited. And she loves to hear him talk about music and, and about how art is his one grasp on a, a, a maker. Like the one thing that he still believes in is the, the beauty and the arts. It has to be something beyond ourselves. So that's one of the things that connects them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get that from the book. Absolutely. Um, You was talking earlier, Bill, about Benjamin having that, you know, do I chase love? Do I chase being a being a great dad? Right? Right. How about Anna? What's her? What? What's she about? Well, like I said, when we first meet her, you know, she is um, she's very much uh, she has her ideas very set about who she is, where she's going. Um, she is um, somewhat rigid. Um, she's got daddy issues. Her dad left her. And her mom is uh, always reminding her to be practical. Um, so, so she has sort of got her whole idea about she's going to be a, a lawyer. And, and when she gets her career in order, she's going to be a mother. And, you know, so she got And... Um, that evolves, of course, because we, we, meet, we meet her in the first flashback, as you know, uh, in the first day of college. And then we jump forward. As I said, she's getting married to Keith. So we have a time jump 10, 10 years forward. And then um, Benjamin and, and Anna kind of reconnect. Uh, we won't talk too much about the specifics, but they connect via email. So it's a sort of like this epistolary relationship. And, and in, in, in that, they explore... Um, or, or Benjamin finds out essentially that Anna has become very restless and, and nostalgic and wanting to reconnect with, a, with a, her passionate younger self. I'm going to tread lightly here, but something you said just intrigued me about Anna being rigid. Yeah. And earlier you were talking about Benjamin kind of trying to find his place. So I'm treading lightly because I don't want to give too much away in the book. But can you sort of circle around what draws these two characters together? What draws them to each other? Well, first off, it's important to note when Benjamin first sees Anna, I mean, he's completely smitten and he feels she's completely out of his league. So there's that, the level he's looking up all the time. And and, and that starts the relationship off kind of askew because he's worried about Keith who you know who becomes his best friend but it's uncomfortable because he fancies Anna as well and Keith is also sort of a beautiful creature and Anna and Keith are he thinks you know are 
like up here and Benjamin's down here. <laughs> and so um, uh, to circle back to your, your question, what draws them together, as I said earlier, um, Anna is, is enchanted in a way by Benjamin's way with words and, and the way he talks about the things he's passionate about. Mm. And he is wayward and um, wondrous whereas she has essentially mannered herself in a way to be, as I said, you know, this career-oriented person. And for a while in college, this works. Um, as the story goes on, um, that becomes hard to sustain because um, you'll find out that, you know, as graduation looms, Benjamin is still out here and she's got her eye on the dot on the horizon and mm -hmm. and so that wears a little we'll, we'll just leave it at that it's interesting what you said about benjamin finding honor alluring and there's that element to what you were just saying about honor being kind of rigid and on a pathway but still intrigued by benjamin and it made me think about she's finding that maybe free spirit's not the right word but that not being so rigid, alluring as well. Um, when they reconnect later, she's become restless and, as I said, nostalgic and yearning for a rekindling of her younger version of herself. And she is, um, as I said, a little, a little nostalgic about Benjamin's younger self and how he, how he had pulled her out of her shell and made her feel alive. I, I think a lot of us, we, we. I think a lot of us want to know why or we want some um, confirmation or validation as to why we loved people or mm -hmm. why we were drawn to them, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, other than those that blow up spectacularly, we, we kind of want to, at least I'll speak for myself, I want to know why, why I love people and, and why they still resonate. And I think that's sort of like there's a little meta aspect, modern meta aspect of this book and the way I, you know, I use texts and, and, and emails and, and yeah. acknowledge Instagram and Facebook, Facebook's, you know, becoming a thing. And, and, and it speaks to why people want to, why want to, why people want to reconnect, uh, and, and, and have, have their pasts explained to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in reading through the book, um, it's that, they're just so intertwined, even when they have gone their different ways, if you will, right? Yeah. You know, they remain intertwined. And another character that's so intertwined in all this that you alluded to earlier is Sophia, Benjamin's daughter. Yes. Um, it's kind of, and it's as a father myself of a son, it's interesting to kind of see uh, that relationship, Benjamin and um, Sophia kind of evolved from childhood to teenager to off to college. How, who's given who the support throughout that? I mean, it seems to vary as the as the book goes on, right? When we meet Sophia, she's a wondrous, innocent little kid. She's nine years old, but a young nine. Yeah. And so, and she's completely enamored with Benjamin, and Benjamin is completely not just enamored with his daughter, but he, he knows that she's keeping him sane and, and, and alive and of purpose. And even though his therapist, Cassandra, warns him it's coming, he's just completely unprepared for emptiness and pre-emptiness syndrome, I should say, which comes unusually early in, in, the, in the story, uh, classically speaking. And so... Um, that evolution of the relationship, which gets very strained in the difficult teenage years, um, throws Benjamin very much into a tailspin, um, which I think you and I could speak of in real life, trying to prepare ourselves for that moment of disconnection. Um, not full disconnection, but that slow, you know, where the, the boat is starting to yeah. drift out to sea. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked before, it's, it's that bittersweet irony that we've given them that strength and that courage and bravery to do just that, to leave us. And yet that's the thing that hurts the most. And you see that in Benjamin, you know, you see yes. that moment where he wants to freeze time. And I think there's yes. 
as as Sophia starts to grow a little older, he's reflecting back and saying that I wish I could have frozen that moment in time. Yeah, and um, and Cassandra, the therapist, keeps telling him, you know, this is going to come sooner than you think. She's you need she's going to be not thinking you're the center of the universe any longer, and you've got to be ready for it. And no matter how much she say, says it, and I guess no one can really be prepared for it. At least if you're of of the member of the team that you and I are, Raj, <laughs> who are actually in the trenches. Well, <laughs> not th- talking about the cardboard cutout dads here. Sure. Well, that's Need another not part apply. of <laughs> That's another part of the book that I found relatable, of course. You know, there's yeah. so many aspects to how you crafted the novel that I feel there's parts for for everybody to relate to, to glomp onto and identify with and struggle with. Um, and, and another part of the book that's just so um, you know, intriguing is you've got some very strong female characters. We've talked about Anna and we've talked about Sophia in this. Right. And in reading the book, um, Cassandra also struck me as a as a great strong well-developed character she starts out as his therapist but it I, I always saw when i read the book i always feel it's it's there's something more to it not in a sexual way but just in a supportive different it's, it's different than a way can you tell us a little bit about benjamin and cassandra and how she fits into his life well first off i will cop to the fact that um cassandra and benjamin I mean, a lot of these face-offs, if you will, are taken very much right out of uh, a therapist I had um, for a couple years. And so a lot of that is very inspired by real stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But to answer your question, um, yes, Cassandra is a very nurturing type, but she has a way of being confrontational to the limit like taking it to the limit of pushing benjamin to an uncomfortable position and um you know and she tells him you know like you've been telling me all along that you've got to protect sophia protect sophia get her in the lifeboat yeah make sure she's safe but you don't realize you've missed it this whole time she's been fine she's growing into being a an extraordinary young lady you're missing it I think originally I was watching Sopranos and I thought, isn't this interesting? Uh, You know, Tony Soprano has these therapy sessions amidst all this crazy stuff that goes on. And I'm not saying there's anything mafia about what's going on the storyline, but I, I love the idea of juxtaposing kind of like when you kind of feel your sanity has a shelf life and it, and it feels like it almost dries up if you don't get in there fast enough, Yeah, you know, and like it, and so, like, that's the same way of, like, he lets it all out after, like, there's, like, three weeks in between visits. And then when he leaves, just he he, le- he he drives home listening to music and he's crying all the time. Not in a bad way. It's, like, it's releasing the toxins. It's, it's, um, it's cathartic. Well, even there's some moments in the book where he is in Cassandra's office and doesn't clearly does not want to be there. Clearly he's just too uncomfortable, you know, but he, but he would, he would lose it if, if he didn't have it. And he, he does know that. You know, it was funny because um, there were certain moments when I was reading the book and I was reflecting on this just a few days ago, actually, again, on the Cassandra character and Ben's view, almost seen her as a, as a drug, you know, he needed her, he needs her, but sometimes doesn't know, how to deal with it and she's just sort of you know out there in front of him and it was in and i and i referenced back to the book um as well as i was thinking about this and and i realized i was taking it in a different direction but it was just very interesting how this how you built that relationship between the two yeah drug-like if that's your question sure i mean i again i i think we've talked about this you and i the fact that um benjamin's one of his deep flaws is it he has built up or he buys into a lot of illusions about how things are you know uh, you know he he tells himself i gotta get sophie into lifeboat i gotta i've gotta protect her otherwise she's gonna have all this mental illness in my family will be passed through me to her like you know no matter how many times cassandra tells him 
that's not going to happen. Mental illness is not a virus. It, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're not going to catch it. No matter how many times he keeps telling himself, I don't care what she says. I gotta, you know, I'm, I'm tunnel vision. I believe this, and I gotta let go of, you know, girlfriends, hobbies, best friends. Screw it. This is what I am, and I'm not going to look at anything else until I get Sophia off and safe. And 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 we've talked about this. How really the reader then becomes. They are actually the wiser of of anyone watching this. It's not Benjamin who's telling the story who's wise. It's the reader who who's looking at this deeply flawed character. He he's not the moral authority. The reader is. There are many times reading it, I'm screaming at the book, or I was listening to it in an audio version, saying, "Do this. Here's what you should be doing right now, Benjamin." And then he'll do something else, and you kind of, as a reader. Or a listener, you kind of put yourself in, okay, well, he's of a different mindset now, you know, but hopefully he'll come around to that when he sees Sophia or Cassandra again, or even Anna again. He, the thing is, he knows he's flawed. He knows he's bought into flawed thinking and illusion, but he can't take his foot off the accelerator. So part of his, if you will, his mental illness, if you will, is... Uh, rigid tunnel vision and he's terrified of letting up or, or letting go of of this idea the only thing he trusts which is I, i'm not much but i can be a great father i can be the father i never had this is what this is what i know and and i know my heart's in the right place so be damned the consequences there's my dot on the horizon and i'm going at it with this belief would you say he, on that struggle you mentioned earlier about the love versus being a father, would you say that he struggled with deserving to be a good father or deserving Anna at all? Well, that's a good question. Um, he certainly has fought a feeling of just whether he deserves good things, and I think that you know, I think that comes. I'm drawing on a very classic kind of. Um, being raised by, you know, a flawed parent and, and an absent one. Um, and a lot of us adopt manner, mannerisms where we don't feel we're, we're worthy of good fortune, mm-hmm. or we adopt this idea that um, uh, fear and dread is, is a more comfortable state because, you know, it's just easier that way. You know, that, when I use the image of the lifeboat, you know, Benjamin in, in the first chapter says, you know, growing up, it was just easier to let everyone else get in the lifeboat. It's fine. I'll swim. It's just easier for me. I'm good with it. I'm used to it. Um, but, but he still stays driven. He's driven by one thing. <laughs> he, he's not driven by, as I said, he's saying to himself, I'm not much, but I know I'm, I'm a good father. Yeah. He knows that he's committed to one thing. And he also knows if he lets go how easy it can all fall apart. Yeah, and, and but one of the things I admire about his character is in, he's, he's cognizant of that. That he's cognizant that I could blow at any time. I mean, there's moments in the book where he, uh, he, he I don't want to give anything away mm. here, but he gets very um, deep into evaluation yeah. And self-reflection, but uh, that's one of the things that I was able to relate to was that self-reflection, self-doubt, but also he was man- he manages to still get back on track because of Sophia. Because of Sophia, exactly. Sophia is yeah. is the light, mm-hmm. and he, he, she she's the one who keeps. I mean, really, I mean, we start off. With the po- with the question posed, is it love or fatherhood that will save him? He tells he tells Cassandra and he tells Anna at turns and he tells his coworker Sarah and and he'll tell Keith he'll tell these people you know only Anna knew me, but it's really Sophia who knows. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. There's a pivotal moment in the book where there are some um, communication as you alluded to earlier with the email between Anna and Benjamin, that's sort of a pivotal couple of scenes and moments in the book. I got the feeling that she, she didn't so much, she acknowledged she didn't really know him as well as more of what she wanted him to be. 
I, I think it I think it goes both ways. I think they have both romanticized a version of themselves, mm. their younger selves. And I think that's one of the that that section you're talking about. It's 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 as I've called it an epistolary relationship. They to, to they they they're 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 having an uh, they're having communication in a safe quote unquote safe manner. She's married. They both are guilty of of over romanticizing not just the past but versions of themselves. And that that third thing called us is also been. Uh, romanticize. And I think that's a relatable thing for readers, again, to talk about the advent of Facebook and reaching out to whether it be old flames or old friends. I mean, it's not just to get your yayas out. I think a lot of people are just trying to come to grips with their past and they're trying to understand what happened, you know, between that point and now. What got me from there to here? Was I nuts to love that person? <laughs> and then, you know, you can, you, you know, the lines can blur certainly, and you can, you know, you can convince yourselves of things that aren't true. But at the same time, I think, I think your heart yearns to understand your past. And I think that's what's going on with these guys. I'm glad you said it because I was afraid that I was, I might be giving away too much by saying that. No, I've given away way too much already. I don't even know. Don't, don't know worry, no one's, no one's listening to this. <laughs> exactly. Um, the uh, third thing of us, right? You romanticize yeah. about that. And, and in some ways in going through the book, that those moments are really powerful and create a lot of bonding, but yet also conflict for these two characters as, yeah. as the, the vision of what that third thing of us is. And I found that very right. interesting and relatable. What's funny about it is having said all this, you know, they, they do reach an impasse, which, you know, I'll do my best not to give away, but <laughs> they re when they reach an impasse, the tables have turned a little bit because in a way through this whole, um, experience benjamin has assigned himself or deputized himself if you will guardian of a line mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to not cross because he he loves her but he doesn't want her to blow her life up well I, well i think it's you know uh this relationship is just ever evolving through the book and it's hit so many different stages of compatibility there's moments where they both think they're on, you know, especially when they first meet and that first scene. And there's this beautiful scene. Can you go into that a little bit about when they first met and what happens and um, the drive, the connection, if you will? Well, as I said, he, he can't believe he got her in the car. You know, it's Keith who has the leading man looks when they first meet that first day at college. And... Um, when he kind of convinces her to give him the slip and convinces her to get in the car, take a drive, play her music, and they end up on a you know this sand mountain that really exists up by Point Magoo, up at yeah. PCH, and sure. up here above LA. And they have this heart-to-heart -heart talk, and they tell each other their life stories uh, as it exists up to that point. And, um, you know, they they, as I said, Benjamin, at that point in his life, He's ready to reinvent himself. He's been a, a loner, a music-obsessed, wannabe writer, loner. And he's ready, first day of college, to use that moment to, to you know, come out. And he, he meets this girl who's not just beautiful, but he, he's deeply touched by the fact that she seems like she already has everything figured out, too much so. And, he, and he's basically saying, wow, that's a lot to already be taking, you know, to be dragging around. You know, it's okay to let up a little bit. And I don't think Anna's ever heard that in her life. And that's, I think that's, and as he starts talking freely about love of music and the arts and just reaching for the stars, she's like, as I said, she becomes enchanted. Mm -hmm. Maybe for the first time in her life, she's let down the guard. And, and he kind of can't believe he's touched her. Because he, she feels up here, and he feels down here. Because again, like it always feels more comfortable to feel down here. How could this beautiful girl who's yeah. up here love me? You know, I guess I'm going to turn this around and ask you something, because it's interesting for me being in my little shell, writing this book feverishly for two years. 
it's interesting for me to talk to a trusted comrade and you read early drafts. It's interesting how much you're taken by the Benjamin-Anna relationship because it, it is a parallel running storyline that is very important that that shadows the father-daughter relationship. And I, I'm just, I guess I'll just throw it back to you. What is it about their relationship that resonates that is relatable or is universal for you so yeah so i'll answer that not only as a reader and a listener for the book but i'll just say one of the great things about the book is they they meet each other first in college before he was a father right and I, and again i want to tread lightly and not give too much away yeah. but we've all been there we've all been at that moment and we've all had that um, I think, Bill, you told me once the Ali McGraw character, right? Right. You know, that we can all relate to. And we, uh, for those of us that feel that we're at a, at a certain lower level and we somebody that's, a, that's several steps up from us, you, you can relate to that in the book. You can relate to that with Benjamin. And then there's moments where in our own personal lives you would wish that that person that you had a thing for would look at you a certain way. And so you, you see Anna and you want to tell Anna hey, this is what you got to do. This is a good dude or something like that. And I found that very intriguing as, and then as uh, each of those characters got older and Sophia came along, there was that element of fatherhood, of course, that then you can relate to as well. But it made it, I think, for a reader, for any listener that, and you don't have to be a parent, I don't think, to relate to this book because we've all, I'm convinced, have had moments where, be it a relationship or be it even some something ambitious that you want to reach for, but you don't feel quite worthy of it. And that's what I was talking about earlier with Benjamin, where he doesn't feel he deserves some of those things. And I think we've all been there. And so I, yeah. I think as a reader, you can relate to that. I mean, like I, you hear Benjamin say at certain points and he notices she's looking at him the mm -hmm. way he always dreams somebody would. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. like that moment that is – like you'd never forget that moment because you never thought anyone would. You dreamt that they would look you, at you that way and appreciate you for the things that mean the most to you. But at the part of you, or for some of us at least, you don't ever believe it could ever happen. And that's why that, that relationship resonates and why he had such a hard time ever letting it go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and another relationship in the book to segue a little bit is the relationship Benjamin has with his mother right and um, knowing you and as you know our, our history and how much time you and I have spent together with each other's families I was lucky enough I know I know your mom I know your aunt I met your grandparents um, you know they were very important in my life as well how explain a little bit about Benjamin and his mother's relationship well, the big difference, of course, is um, at no point in this book is the mother alive, uh, you know, other than, you know, he, he tells stories right. to, you know, Anna or, or Sophia or whatever about her. So she's, she's already, we find out she had died basically, um, well, when the book starts, like, you know, several years ago. Um, and that the specter of her passing is um you know it, it it colors everything you know she she was uh she had given him the writer's muse and so and and all we we hear about the movies and the music she played him um which he turns to ironically for comfort even mm -hmm. though he has a lot of terrible sad memories of growing up when she was not there or or when she was not well so um you know to really get real with you um some of us who are trying to reconcile difficult relationships with our with our mothers or fathers or whatever um we are already preparing for death before it comes mm -hmm. uh, which i have um mm -hmm. and i've i've told my mom this when your mom read it, this is something I don't think you and I have really talked about, so I'm just curious, knowing knowing your relationship and also knowing how it, how it, it is displayed in the book, what did, what did your mom feel about, about 
not the books in general, but more specifically how Benjamin was dealing with his mother in the book. But, you know, I went through this with 33 Days. I mean, I had a very good friend, an excellent writer, um, tell me, Bill, don't you dare put this out until your mom dies. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm going to talk to her. And I told her what's, what it's coming and what's coming and what to be prepared for. And she says, write your story. Mm-hmm. You know, because if there's one thing she inspired me, and, and this is in this is in the book, and it's in 33 days, and it's in real life. And this goes across all all platforms. My mom is a writer first, uh, a flawed um, artist, born in the wrong decade and century probably, but she she told me write write your story, don't edit for God's sake, don't edit. So I'm blessed as as deeply flawed as she is. I'm blessed that she commits and wants me to commit to writing my truth first and foremost. Yeah, and that and and I'll attest to that that she is a writer and an artist first and foremost. Um, I've... But not not all are like that. <laughs> you know, there, a lot of people are sitting on incredible stories, and they can't bring themselves to write it until, you know, the bodies are buried. If I can yeah, be blunt, yeah. Um, and and you know, everyone's got to have their own set of, you know, rules or, or whatever they're comfortable with. I, I don't say that with judgment, but um, as I said, I'm blessed. Um, I, I I'm I I have. I have been able to tell my stories. Yeah, and I and I, uh, you, you're right. You know, I remember you telling me when Thirty Three Days came out that she said that to you, and um, I was curious how it related to this novel as well. What about I, you, Raj? I mean, in Thirty Three Days, I asked you if it was going to be okay to share some of your background, and you had probably as much or more so you had to deal with in terms of the the hard truths you were admitting to. So we've both been through this. I mean, in terms of your culture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I, I hope my recollection is correct here. I think I said to you about the same thing. Just tell tell it as it is. You know, report the facts. Really. Exactly. Um, and I was one of the things I was curious about is when you started out on writing this book, did you intend for it to cover such a large time span in this character's life? Um. Yes. It was always about getting from this moment where we pick up the story. Um, at first, there wasn't a flashback to college. At, at first, it was, you, you know, it starts off with, you know, Benjamin with his therapist, and he lays out all, everything he's dealing with of his young daughter. And, you know, he's just like, I, I got to get her to college, safely off to college. That's That was the whole thing. So it was always going to cover, you know, at least that about you know whatever 15 years when i then came up with the backstory that i wanted to tell with the the anna you know love affair with anna you know taking it back to college then yes then it became like book ending from from benjamin's college years to sophia's and in and- fact he, he mentions that you know when he drops her off at college and it kind of a emotional moment when that we all fathers have shared you know where they they drop their kids off and he mentions like you're standing right where I was, you know, you know, and and that that book ends the story. So that leads to my next question on uh, <laughs> again, without trying to give away too much, there's an important moment in the book where Sophia writes a letter to Benjamin, right? Um, and a lot of that is um, kind of what you and I have experienced about being there for our kids, and it kind of comes full circle for Benjamin. Um, Treading lightly, why did that moment, that letter, why was that the right time for Sophia to write? Why was it the right time for Benjamin to be receptive to that um, as well? Why? Why? Well, well, there's two. There's two things going on there. One, the book is first person narrative, so just speaking in general, I had to create ways for the other characters to reveal themselves and explain themselves and talk about what was at their core and what makes them get up in the morning and what motivates them. I had to create ways for that, you know, uh, uh, mechanisms for them to do that. So there's texts and there's emails, as I discussed, and there's this, this letter and there's other letters and, you know, stuff like that. I had to 
find ways so it wasn't just Benjamin um, in his sort of warped mind being the sole arbiter of what is revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the other part of that question um, about Sophia writing that letter, um, there's a moment in the book where he kind of loses her in adolescence. And this happens for a lot of us, but he's, as I said, he's unprepared. And so Sophia starts going into herself and she's no longer the wondrous little kid. She's not explaining herself or, you know, when he asks her questions, it's monosyllabic or, you know, it's like a lot of us deal with, you know, we don't get the full story anymore. And that's very hard for him to take. And so at the time in which she writes this letter, she's trying to explain to Benjamin why it's never going to be the way it was. Please stop trying to make it the way it was. If you really love me, if you really meant everything you said, raising me, you'll you'll quietly be happy for me, that I have found my own voice, that I have become a fierce fighter, and that is not entirely a product of you. It's part of you, but it's not entirely you. It's me too. And that, I think, is a very, very important transformative moment when she writes that letter she's telling him what he's missed and she knows maybe that's unfair but there was no other way and i think that's helps the reader become even more immersed in your novel i agree where, um it's just so dry as a, as a reader and as a listener it just so draws you in to way you feel as a as a almost a participant, almost as a character in the book, you know, your advice is being ignored by Benjamin, but at the same time, you feel so invested in these characters that you're part of them because there's so much that you can relate to in these characters. Well, you know, I, again, not to make any (laughs) similarity with Tony Soprano, but in the same way that we have seen in the last 10 years in TV, in movies, in books, in whatever, um, there is a move away from the John Wayne hero to the anti-hero. And I'm not saying, again, that Benjamin is some brilliant anti-hero, but he's certainly hard to love sometimes. And you do find yourself, as you said, yelling at the pages saying, no, (laughs) I could save you so much trouble, which is ironic because that's what parents say all the time to their kids. (laughs) But you you have to let them fall in the same way. It's almost like, the the reader is the parent watching the child Benjamin and Benjamin's the man child yeah. trying to parent Sophia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. but I think that's good. I, I I think it's I think it's more egalitarian to have somewhat of a flawed antihero. I think it's a little bit more real. I, you know. Uh, and I was just going to say that. Doesn't that make you more real, more realistic? I you know. It does I mean, for I, me. <laughs> yeah, and for me too as a reader, I think. Uh, but I also felt that way about Anna as, uh, as well. The, the characters in the book, and we can focus on the main three, Anna, Sophia, and um, Benjamin, they feel very real to me. They feel like either myself as a reader or somebody I know uh, very well. You know, you can Maybe you did them. know them, Raj. <laughs> The, those will be secrets we'll keep between ourselves, Bill. <laughs> oh, it's not quite as much as some might think. I, a lot of people have asked me, you know, is this a sequel to 33 Days? You know, like, you know, I think there's a part of, for the for the kind folks that love that book, and I loved it too. <laughs> um, I think a part of them want this to be a little bit of a sequel. But as I said, it's it's really, if there's anything that it's similar is 33 Days ends where it is, and it just gave me a leaping off point to talk about the father-daughter journey yeah. that, that's alluded to at the end of that book. And, you know, like I said, while there are real characters, but, you know, or real people that the characters are based on, and there are many, many events that actually did happen, none of them are really literal or linear. And it's not an accurate retelling of history. So let that let that penetrate because it's not an actual sequel no this is actually a fictional book uh there were moments where i could think back to our past to your past or um another character's past and i would say 
I could see it maybe alluding to that, but but it's it's just a vague you know a vague reference, and then the character develops much much right. in a I different mean, direction. Raj, come on, like you know when when Benjamin and Keith take that trip up north, you know I'm talking about a trip you and I took, but you know you're nothing like Keith. Of course. So it's just it's just taking something that we shared, and then it it's just it's part of the the you know padding out of 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 characters i think that's that's what makes it great is there's parts of it where everyone can say hey i've taken a drive like that or um i can relate to that those experiences everything you've written in the book is down to earth it's down to earth to where it's shared experiences and then we see how these main characters react to it and that's what draws us in as a reader or a listener of the book uh, a few weeks ago well, maybe a month ago now uh you sent me a text on a some night of the week maybe a saturday night and you made an 11th hour change to the book right um right what was, what's um, all that about what what made that happen yeah w- without again giving away too much um i think it must be said that you know you know that i was ready to release this book um the first of this year basically or very early this 2020 um I had it pretty much all ready to go. And the, and in the story, it ends autumn 2019. Um, so I basically brought it up to the present, and I was ready to let it go. Um, and then, you know, COVID hits. Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of us with music or movies or books ready to come out, you know, a lot of us didn't know what we were supposed to do to promote it. Um, I mean, you know, you and I went out on the road and to promote mm-hmm. a book tour for 33 days, and it was a very physical, face-to-face um, operation. <laughs> you know, so I, I guess I was just sort of gobsmacked, like a lot of us, uh, not knowing what to do. And so, you know, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to put this on hold. And Raj, you know me, I couldn't just leave well enough alone. And <laughs> so I went back to work with the story and, you know, mostly on tightening dialogue and pulling together what I call like connective tissue. So it didn't feel like a series of vignettes um, over this long 25 year journey. But the biggest change, yeah, came at the 11th hour when I decided, you know, here's this biggest world event since 9-11. And it felt strangely odd to have the story essentially end where COVID is about to hit. Um, and so that last chapter is now in the future. Um, it's mm-hmm. April 2021 and COVID has just ended, or at least everyone is hoping it is. And so it's like basically the first day Benjamin goes outside without a mask and everyone though is mm-hmm. still leery of making contact with each other. And Benjamin's talking about the last year and what the future might look like. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's another, that's another aspect, hopefully to making it relatable into the here and now for the reader. And hopefully I'm not too altruistic and we're going to be having COVID for another year or something. <laughs> and I'll look like a complete idiot rather hopefully than Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are in this COVID world. How do you plan on promoting this? I don't see, uh, uh, I, I don't expect there to be another live lead, read like I witnessed a, pre-COVID, but um, what's yeah. your plan on that? I mean, I, you know, a lot of us are still trying to figure this out. I mean, what we're doing here is one small promotional tool, which I'm, you know, it's not just an interview. I'm, you know, you and I are talking as old friends, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, we're trying to make this something that no one else can can get is not just talk about the book, but how our, our histories, uh, you know, interlock. And so that's one small aspect. As you know, there's a Spotify playlist mm-hmm. um, that has all 137 songs, you know, um, that people can kind of use their imagination to, to go along. Uh, the, the audio book you mentioned is actually like a podcast where I actually introduce each chapter and mm-hmm. tell what the, the inspiration behind it is. So that's another aspect. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the website is very interactive, which I've just launched, you know, everything that came before grace.com. Um, you know, it has a lot of interesting stuff on there that hopefully does something, but you know, as far as a book tour, I mean, yeah, that's, that's on hold. And, you know, I'm just, I'm still, you know, there's, you know, book giveaways, stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, we're, we're all still thinking on our feet, trying to come up with creative ways, you know, while, 
people say, oh, put a book out because everyone's reading. At the same time, that means the flood of the market is there's there's more books. And so you got to get more creative. Um, I feel that in this in this time of COVID and culture, this is a book that people would want to read. You know, there's a lot of reflection in the book. There's a lot of ways to identify with the book. And, and I certainly hope that there's ways to publicize it. How, uh, how can people get a hold of you? Well, the website has my email. Um, I'm not hiding behind anything or a iCloud or a dot .edu or God knows what. It's, it's my <laughs> personal email. You go there and find it on the contact page. And the um, website address again is? The website is just the book. It, it's everything that came before grace.com. Um, and the you know the audiobook is on all sorts of platforms, Spotify and Apple Books or Apple Podcasts. Um, if I wanted RSS to get feed. a uh, um, if I wanted to get a hard copy of the book, you said yeah. you gave your yeah. mom a paperback version. Uh, how well, do I, Am- how do I get Amazon Amazon is exclusively selling it now. It won't be forever that way, but they get they they get an exclusive window, so you can go there now to get either the Kindle or the um, paperback. For cheap, very cheap. Can't find books for eleven ninety nine or whatever it is. Excellent. Twelve ninety nine, I forget. Excellent. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there for the first uh, fifty people that buy the book. We'll make sure Bill gives you a personally signed copy or something. We'll figure how we'll we figure it out. Oh, I'll, I'll figure it out. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have you go up to each person's doorstep and uh, assume they're in <laughs> they're in L.A. or something. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm hoping. I'm hoping the book will resonate with I'm going to say three threefold. I obviously I hope it'll resonate with the down in the trenches parents we've talked about, but not just parents but the ones who quietly struggle with balancing being the best they can be for their kids but also giving them permission to keep pursuing their dreams and the guilt that comes with that. Mhm. And I think it will also connect with those of us, as I said before, that are trying to reconcile with these these serendipitous, fate-altering moments of our past. And finally, I think it will mean something to folks who turn to music or movies or the arts for comfort. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's my hope. I'm going to – Bill, I'm going to add a fourth to that. Okay. Add a fourth to that. I, and that fourth is I think – for those of us that have struggled growing up and with being parents as well, um, there's also that group of college-age kids who have seen their parents struggle, who have who have gotten their own stories from their parents. And I think it could resonate to that group as well because Sophia is such a lovely and strong character in this book that I think she's relatable by folks that are her contemporaries today. I think that's a very good point, and I completely forgot about that because you're right. Because one of the things that goes on is as she is pulling away, one of the reasons is she gets frustrated that Benjamin has so many secrets. And he – now, she doesn't know that yet, but he has so many secrets because he's afraid to let her in to his crazy mind. And I think that speaks to what you were just saying And that because parents, they're trying to balance what what do I show them and what do I hide. And I think you're right. It's – when 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 kids we have trouble seeing our kids in real time for who they really are as they grow and we don't perceive them a lot of times for how much they've grown or matured and that's definitely something that's going on in this book in this relationship and you're right because that's something that's sophia and a lot of kids they they view their parents mm-hmm. in a way that the parents can't possibly fathom not in real time at least and what made me think about it was you know in a weird way i hope by reading your book there's some kids out there who maybe haven't transitioned to where sophia is that may maybe encourage a conversation with their parents or something you know you never know okay we're, we're gonna add a fourth then it's fourfold now <laughs> thank fourfold. you <laughs> <laughs> quadrophenia yes <laughs> Bill C., thank you for being here today. The book is Everything That Came Before Grace. It is an incredible novel. Uh, There is just something for everybody to relate to. Um, Just to prove that you can't put it down, I have read it and have listened to it many times (laughs) over just because I've wanted to. And there's something I was telling Bill um, 
I think it was my second or third listen, that I keep hearing things or keep picking out things in the book that I hadn't caught the first round. It's that well, the characters are that well developed. Um, well, thank you, Raj. Thank you, Bill, for being part of here. And one more time, what is the book's website? Same as the book's title, everything that came before grace.com. <laughs> is this where I ask you, hey, what's the book's title? And you say, just like the website. Subtitled, A Father-Daughter Story. Bill C., thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we'll see you on uh, the promotion trail soon. All right. Thanks, Raj. Sure. This has been the Everything That Came Before Grace podcast. I'm Bill C., Special thanks to Sandlot7 for permission for rebroadcasting this interview.